Well, before X-Men, before Wolverine, before the Hulk, before Black Panther, before Spider-Man, before Batman, even before Superman, there was Samson. There was Samson. Samson and Delilah, one of the best-known couples in the Bible, one of the best-known couples in history. They've been immortalized in uh, not only in the biblical record, but they've been immortalized in songs and in art and in books and uh, movies, even, uh, even musicals uh, they've been uh, immortalized in. Uh, Samson is at once, you know, um, both heroic and terribly morally flawed. And I think that's in part the reason that we are drawn to them, why we're drawn to people like that, because we, um, we want to be heroic, and yet we know we're flawed. And when we look into the weakness and strengths of other people, and it's magnified, sometimes we are able to locate ourselves in there somehow and identify with what it's like to want to do the right thing and then yet so often miss it. You know, Samson was one of only two people that had a particular privilege in the Old Testament. Only one other person had this particular thing happen to them. Anybody Bible scholars out there just hazard a guess as to what that was? I'll give you a hint. The other person it happened to was Isaac. Isaac and his parents. There's a hint for you. Any ideas? Nope, not late birth. (laughs) Only twice in all the Old Testament did an angel appear to a parent and say, you're going to have a child. Only twice. The first one was Isaac when the angel appeared to Sarah and then to Abraham and Sarah, and then Manoah, who was Samson's father and his wife, an angel appeared to them and told them about the birth of Samuel. And they told them that Samuel would be a Nazarite from birth. He would be committed to God, committed to God's purposes. He would be one who never had a razor touch his head. Never. Uh, It mentions in our scripture today that when his hair was cut off, they cut off the seven locks of his hair. He had the hair, you can imagine how long it must have been. It was braided to seven different strands or locks. A razor never touched his head, and he never was to drink alcohol alcohol or wine. In fact, when the angel told his mother, she said, "You, you have to stop now because this baby is never to touch alcoholic drink in his life. He was to be committed to God. And the symbol, the outward symbol of his consecration to God was the hair upon his head. The fact that he did not drink was a side issue to that. The main issue, the main focus of Samson's covering, the thing that said he belonged to God was the uncut hair upon his head. And very early in his life, he began to sense something of God's work in him. Early in in Judges chapter 13 and verse 25, 
And his story only takes up three chapters in the Scripture. And in that first chapter, it says in verse 25 that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And how would he know that was happening? Well, the way that that manifested in Samson's life was through feats of strength. When God's Spirit would move upon him, it was usually in relationship to doing something that required out-of-the-ordinary supernatural strength to accomplish. There was a touch, some touch of heavenly omnipotence that was at work in him. The power of God, the strength of God was at work at him and was seen in how he would operate when the Spirit came upon him. There's a story in chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. It says, Then Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Now for me, I'd have said, run, (laughs) right? Not Samson. Samson stands there, and look what it says. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. There it is. Every feat of strength that Samson exhibits has something to do with God's Spirit stirring, rushing, moving upon him. And so he stands there, and with nothing in his hand, he takes on that lion and tears it apart. Now, I've been around strongman shows. Have you ever been around those strongman shows? There's a bunch of guys called the, uh, the power something or other, not power rangers, power lifters or power something, huh? The power team, yeah. And those guys would blow up, you know, uh, uh, water bottles, you know, those uh, uh, you know, water, rubber water bottles. They'd blow them up till they broke. One guy actually tore a phone book in half with his hands. Took him a while, and you could see that he was really struggling. Just get that thing torn in half. You ever been around a lion? <laughs> you don't tear a lion in half. I don't care how strong a man you are. You don't get a hold of a lion, especially a lion that, is not, that does not want you to tear him in half, who would rather eat you. You don't tear a lion in half. That doesn't happen. Samson, with nothing in his hands but the strength of God, takes that lion and tears it apart as, it would, as he would as one tears a young goat. Oh, that boy was strong when the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Just three chapters, we find Samson to be this complex person who, who is, uh, whose, whose character is always questionable. I mean, always questionable. And yet, God's Spirit will come upon him and use him to bring judgment against the Philistines. And he became a judge in Israel. And for 20 years, he became the ju- a judge in Israel. C.H. Spurgeon said this about Samson. He said, Samson, though he had great physical strength, had but little 
mental force. <laughs> That's really true. Had little mental force and even less spiritual power. His whole life is a scene of miracles and follies. He had but little grace and was easily overcome by temptation. He is enticed and led astray, often corrected. Still he sins again, and eventually he falls into the hands of the woman we know as Delilah. Delilah has been bribed by the Philistines to try to find out the source of Samson's strength to find out what they need to do to overcome this one who, has, who is conquering them and who is doing damage to their place in the world. And we know the outcome, right? I mean, it's one of the most famous stories. He keeps teasing Delilah. He tells her it's one thing, then he tells her it's another, and the Philistines come in. You know the Philistines must have got, been getting tired of Delilah at this uh, at this point, because they kept getting messed up and beat up and killed whenever they would come rushing in, thinking that Delilah had given them the right information, but Samson had not given her the right information. And so finally one night, tired of her relentless asking, he says to her, a razor has never touched my head. And if my hair was gone, my strength would be gone. And then he fell asleep. And so we know what happens. She shaves his head, or she calls somebody in to shave his head. He awakens to Philistine soldiers attacking him. He, he comes, he stands up, he shakes himself like he'd always done in the past. He would shake himself because he knew when he did that, God's Spirit was going to come upon him, and he would be able to take care of whoever was attacking him. But what he did not know as he stood up, is that there was not a hair on his head. And they attacked him, and they subdued him, and they gouged out his eyes, and put him in prison, and made him push the millstone around and around, making food for his enemies tragic and sad, sad ending. Now, we know the tables turn, don't we? We know that the tables turn. Samson's hair, it's, in fact, it's a wonderful little uh, message there at, uh, at the end of chapter uh, 14, I believe, where his eyes have been gouged out. He's laying there. He's in there in prison. And then the last line says, last line says and Samson's hair began to grow. It began to grow. And as it was growing, the symbol of his covering, the symbol of his authority and who he was, was returning. Now, we're not going to go any further down that route. You say, well, Jeff, why are you, why are you bringing up Samson today? What is it about this story that you want us to take something away from? Well, we're bringing up the story to illustrate something. And, and I'm going to lean unashamedly on my, on my great theological hero. You know who he is? Spurgeon, yes. 
I'm going to lean on my theological hero because uh, Spurgeon preached a number of, of, uh, of messages, sermons about Samson, and he would talk about you know, the, you know, the source of our strength and our consecration to God and what happens when we surrender uh, that consecration and we lose the source of our strength. But I, but I want to draw you to one particular message. <clears throat> There's a, there was a sermon that he preached. It was in 1868. In fact, it was on August 30th, 1868 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. And he was preaching about Samson, but he was talking to his church about prayer. Now you see the connection. He's talking to his church about prayer and about intercession, and he's illustrating something about that using the life of Samson. Well, let me read you this. He was preaching a message. The text, the main text of his message was from Acts 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That was the text he was preaching from. Here's where this gets interesting. And I want you to hear his history here that he recounts. He says, the prayer meeting. We have one this morning, by the way. We had a short prayer meeting. We have one every Sunday morning before this service starts. He said, the prayer meeting is an institution which ought to be very precious to us and to be cherished very much by us as a church. For to it we owe everything. Now listen, this man was one of the most famous uh, oratorical preachers of his time. He would preach to crowds of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. No amplification. He would preach and people would come from miles and miles and miles around to listen to him preach. No music, no praise band, no opening song, no closing song. You came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle for one reason, to hear a sermon by Spurgeon who would get up and would preach in such a way that he would keep everybody in that room gripped in the truth of God's Word. But look at what he credits his church's growth to. When our comparatively little chapel was all but empty, was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full and when the church increased and the place was scarce large enough, it was a prayer meeting that did it all. When we went to Exeter Hall, we were a praying people indeed. And when we entered on the larger speculation or the larger opportunity, as it seemed, of the Surrey Music Hall, what cries and tears went up to heaven for our success. And so it has been ever since. At the point he's, pre he's preaching this, he's, they're now in this metropolitan tabernacle. If you've ever been to London and seen it, it's amazing. It's huge. And Spurgeon is preaching in this 
tabernacle. Multiplied thousands in the room are listening to him. And he's recounting that all the way from the time that they were a small little chapel to this day he's preaching in the metropolitan tabernacle of London, he's saying the entire way, here's what has been the key, here's what has been the secret, here's what has been the, the, uh, the engine of our success, prayer. We're a praying church. We're a praying church. And then he goes on and says this, it is in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson and the church of God will become weak as water. And though we, as Samson did, go and try to shake ourselves as at other times, we shall hear the cry the Philistines be upon thee, and our eyes will be put out, and our glory will depart unless we continue mightily and with earnestness in prayer. In many ways we could point to a church, at least in the Western world for sure, that could be described often as weak as water. Why? Why? Because the gimmicks don't work. Because fads won't do it. Because the latest program doesn't make it happen. Or oh, you can gather people under any number of different ways of doing things. But it doesn't matter if you have one person weak as water or you have 10,000 people weak as water. It won't be the church that Jesus is calling to stand in this world. Spurgeon standing upon that platform, surrounded by multiplied thousands, said this is only the result of a praying people because that is where our strength lies. Spurgeon believed in the multiplied power of prayer. He would talk about this in different ways. He would talk about uh, someone loving another person, how it's good to have someone love another. But when there are more people loving each other and more people loving each other and more loving each other, then the room becomes filled with love. And that love is stronger and richer and deeper and more powerful and more life-transforming. Spurgeon understood something about the synergy that comes when multiplied numbers of people are doing something together. And he considered prayer that way. It was one thing for one person alone to pray. But for him, it was altogether something different, something better if two or more were gathered in his name. He would say simply for this reason alone that Jesus said, if any two of you agree as touching anything, I will do it. I will act on your behalf. Is it bad to pray alone? Of course not. It's very important that we pray alone. But he was, a, he was saying that when it comes to getting God's work done in this world, two are better than one. 
That passage in Ecclesiastes is true about a lot of things. Two are better than one. Three is better than two. And ten is better than three. It's a powerful thing when large numbers of people began to come together and to pray and to seek God. Listen to Spurgeon's words again. Single prayers are like the single hairs of Samson. But the prayers of the congregation are like the whole of his bushy locks wherein his strength lie. And therefore, you should, in Tertullian's phrase, now Tertullian was an early church father. And so he takes a phrase that people in his day would have been familiar with. He said, as Tertullian said, quasi manu facta. You all are familiar with that phrase, I'm sure, that Latin phrase, right? Which I've probably said wrong, but you wouldn't know it. <laughs> but the phrase means to gather in a militant matter as a holy conspiracy to accomplish something great. And so he says this, he says, he says therefore you should, in Tertullian's phrase, quasi-manufacta, with a holy conspiracy, besiege heaven and force out a blessing for your pastors. Now, this is October. I don't know who started it. Like many things, you think Hallmark probably started it. But October has now become... Pastor Appreciation Month. So I'm going to be honest with you. I almost didn't include that line about forcing out a blessing for your pastors because I, I, I don't want that to be misunderstood. But here's the thing. I have to include it because you have to understand what he's talking about here and how important it is. When he says, force out... <clears throat> Pray in such a way that, you, that heaven is moved, God moves, and you, and you, by a holy conspiracy besieging heaven, force out a blessing for your pastors. Here's the thing. A good pastor wants his people to grow. A good pastor wants his people to mature, to become more Christ-like to be fruitful, for their marriages to give glory to God, for their families to give glory to God. Paul would say of the churches, who is our joy and our glory? You are. You are. He would talk about how much pleasure and blessing he experienced in watching the churches grow and God's people grow. That's what Tertullian's speaking about when he says, force out a blessing for your pastors. He's not saying that the end of it all is make your pastor happy. No. no. He's saying force out something so powerful and so profound that your pastor, who is basically reduced to just looking on at God's mighty work, will be blessed. 
they'll be blessed by it. When people are fruitful, when you're fruitful, when you're praying for others, when your life is exhibiting Christ, when, 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 you're, when your prayers are such that it's, it's transforming your lives and the lives of other people, that blesses me. That blesses me. What Spurgeon is urging here is, is militant, heaven-storming prayer that will so transform the lives of ourselves and those that we're in contact with. Let me finish his quote here. He says, this is a fine metaphor wherewith to set forth united prayer. One prayer is a hair of Samson, but our united supplications are as the seven locks of that hero's head. May God grant that the church may never be shorn of the locks of prayer wherein her great strength lies and her great beauty also. Come then, he says, come then to the meetings for prayer, for there is the strength of the church, and there are her Samson's locks. So let me tell you three things you can do that I would love to see each and every one of us do. You know, Paul said to pray without ceasing. If you try to push that into some kind of a, you know, literalistic thing, you're just going to get yourself in trouble, not to mention look crazy half the time. But he says pray without ceasing. He's talking about being consistent in prayer. Be consistent in prayer. So here's three things you can do. Number one, pray for your church daily. Pray for your church daily. Pray for me daily, please. Pray. Whether you do it at your grace time at a meal or whether you do it in your own personal prayers uh, in the evening or the morning, pray for your church daily. Ask God to pour out His Spirit. Ask God to revive our hearts. Ask Him to make us fruitful for His glory. Second thing you can do, come to the prayer meeting. Come to the prayer meeting. Every Sunday morning, there's prayer in here. It starts at 9.30. We put on some very quiet music, and from 9.30 to about 9.40, 9.41, it's just quiet. People are praying. You just pray on your own. Little strands of Samson's hair all over the building here. And then about 9.40, we say, okay, let's come pray together. And Samson's locks come together down front here, and we begin to pray and ask God to move and to be powerful and to be mighty. There's people who are here every Sunday morning before you get here praying for you. Every Sunday there are people in this place who are praying for you that God will move in your life. Come and be a part of that when you can. Come and be a part of that. Can't be a regular? That's fine. Give a Sunday a month. 
make a small sacrifice. Put it on your calendar to get up a half an hour early and come to church a little early and come pray with us. Pray with us. I would suggest to you that it is behavior congruent with what we say we believe. And that's something we're after. Congruency between what we say we believe and what we do. And the third thing, join Pray and Go. Become part of the Pray and Go ministry. In Pray and Go, we are spread out. We're Samson's hairs, if you will, all over our different communities. But in the Spirit, we are together. And as Samson's mane, we are within these communities interceding and praying together. So come on. Sign up for Pray and Go. 45 minutes once a month. Simple, but so powerful, so profound a ministry this is. Because we believe that things happen when we pray that would not have happened had we not prayed. So let's pray. Let's pray. Let's bless our communities. Let's steward our inheritance. Let's pray for open doors. Can anybody say amen to that? So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to bring you one more beautiful thought from a whole another sermon, a whole another time that, that Spurgeon was preaching God's Word. And he was talking about the prayer life, and he was talking about Jesus, talking about the wonderful prayer life of Jesus and how relentlessly he prayed and how relentlessly he still prays. And he, and he takes the picture of, of Samson uh, at the end of his days up there between the pillars, and he's pushing against those pillars. And as the Spirit of God rushes upon him, he <clears throat> regains that supernatural strength, pushes those pillars, and literally brings down the house. Such power exerted. Such impact because of his praying. Because of his pushing against those pillars. And then Spurgeon said, oh, oh, there is one greater. There is one greater. See the Son of Man. See the Lord Jesus out alone in the wilderness, out where he would go in the nighttime and spend the night in prayer. He would spend the night in prayer. He would stand there in the place which he himself had brought into being. See the Savior as he puts his hands upon everything. As he puts his hands and literally moves 
heaven and earth on your behalf. Samson knocked down a house. Jesus is knocking down principalities and powers of darkness and this world's system and its emptiness and its hopelessness. Jesus is still doing that. He is our great high priest. He is our intercessor. He is always praying, always interceding, always moving heaven and earth for your sake, to bring you to himself, to accomplish his purpose in you, and through you, change the world.